Well, good morning and welcome to LifePoint. On both of our campuses, we are in a summer series called At the Movies, where we're looking at some of the most popular movies where we are discovering biblical truths in unexpected places. Now, though we have the rights to enjoy these movie clips in the service, we also see that when we go to broadcast it, it'll get interrupted and often the content gets blocked. And well, that's just not a very good experience for you. And so what we've decided to do is go back and, and find some of the most well-received, impactful messages over the last year, and we're going to share those with you so that you can enjoy those uninterrupted. Now, if you would like to come and join us at, at the Movies, Plano at 9 o'clock, Rock Hill at 1030, we'd love to have you there. But thank you for tuning in with us, and I hope today's message is an encouragement. Well, good morning. Hey, some of y'all are awake. Let's try it again. Good morning. As Mark said, my name is Isaac and I am thrilled uh, to be with you this morning. We're going to jump right in. I got a question. Actually, I got several questions for you this morning. So let me ask this one first. Have you ever said you wouldn't do something that you inevitably did anyway? Like, I would never, and then you did it anyway. Like, I'll never eat sushi and now you eat sushi, right? Anybody ever done that? Okay, a few of you. Now, if you have your hands, I need two brave volunteers to share with us what you said you wouldn't do, but you did anyway, okay? Who's going to be my first volunteer? Who's going who's to be brave? Ooh, okay, right here. Ooh. Hey, look at that. <laughs> that is awesome. So the moral of that story is maybe you should do what you said you weren't going to do as long as it's, you know, not sin or something. I mean, you don't want to do that. But so, so that was so good. I'm just going to skip number two. Is that okay with y'all? That was really, that was really good. I, I just recently, um, I did something similar and it has absolutely no effect on any other person like yours did. But uh, when I was in college, I worked at Whataburger, which we know is somehow in competition with In-N-Out and whatever you like the best is great. But I worked at Whataburger and a guy came in one day and he said, hey, I need four hamburger patties. That was it. That's all he wanted was just the meat, four hamburger patties. And so we charged him for two double meat Whataburgers and we cooked the patties up and we gave them to him. But I was really curious, like, what's he going to do with these hamburger patties? And so I watched him and he walked outside and outside in the back of his truck were two Dobermans to which he gave two hamburger patties each to these dogs. And I thought, wow, he really loves his dogs. And then I thought, that's crazy. That's a lot of money that he just spent for a snack for his dog. So I would never, ever do anything like that. Well, fast forward to this week. I went to the ranch for a couple of days and my sidekick, Oreo, went with me and we're going through Abilene, Texas. 
And as we're going through, I stop at Chick-fil-A because I'm hungry. And this is what happened this week. This is Oreo. And there are his 12 count grilled chicken nuggets that I paid way too much money for, for a snack for my dog. So we understand when we say we're going to do something that we did. Let, let me ask another question. And this one might be a little heavier. Okay. Just warning up front. Have you ever refused grace to someone and then found yourself in a similar situation? Like you're pretty hard on someone and then you find yourself in the same situation. Like you're driving down the road and someone just comes flying past you and your first thought is, oh, they're a reckless driver. What are they doing? Where's the police when you need them? And then you get over the next hill and sure enough, they're pulled over on the side of the road. The red and blues are flashing and what do you think to yourself? Yeah. <laughs> Got what they deserved, right? right? Until a couple of days later, it's the red and blue lights flashing in your rearview mirror, right? Now, my parents are here today, and I asked my dad if it was okay if I shared this story because it's about him, and it's not necessarily a shining light. Um, so not necessarily throw him under the bus, but real close. Uh, but when we were kids, Sunday lunch was a big thing to us. Um, and so mom fixed a feast every Sunday, more, uh, Sunday afternoon, and it was, it was the best meal of our week, and uh, it, it was an expensive meal for us, and we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So we sit down at the table, it's a big thing, and my brother uh, reaches for something, and inevitably, this happened more than once, um, spilled his tea. His glass. Now, we drank from jars growing up. I don't know if anybody still does that, but he had a pint jar and, and he spilled his tea all over the table. Now, my dad was frustrated and got onto my brother, but let me just preface this just a little bit, okay? Um, my mom's sweet tea, you could pretty much put it on your pancakes and waffles. That's how sweet this tea was. So it does make a big mess, right? And so it was, son, how many times have I told you you have to be careful and you don't reach over your glass? And you know, all of those things that dads tell their kids. And so we get it cleaned up and I say, we, pff, mom, got it all cleaned up and we went to start over. So my dad prays over the food and he reaches to get something. And what do you think he does? He spills his sweet tea, but he doesn't drink out of a pint. He drinks out of a quart. And so it went everywhere all over the table. And I'm telling you right now, you talk about, you could hear a pin drop. You could hear a pin drop from 18 blocks away. Nobody in the house knew what to do. Like, who's going to say, dad, how many times do I have to tell you? Right? So, so a little grace. And I can promise you this, what he wanted in that moment was grace. He didn't want someone to say, I told you so. He didn't want those kinds of things. But why is it when it comes to grace, when it comes to giving and receiving grace, you and I all have a double standard? We all have a double standard. We're gonna talk about grace today. And we're, like Mark said, we're continuing in our series, Crave. But grace is the one thing that we deserve the least, but we crave the most. And so this is a series on grace, and we're going to look at this question today. Hopefully by the end of today, we answer this question and why this question is actually important in the first place. Why is it difficult for us to give grace when it is so easy for us to receive grace? 
Why is it so difficult to give grace when it's so easy to receive it? Now, we're going to look just like every other uh, week in, in this series at a story that is going to help us see the answers to these questions about grace that we have. And today, we're going to look at the story of Jonah. Now, Jonah was a minor prophet. That doesn't mean um, that he wasn't good enough to make the majors, right? That's not what that means. It just means the book of Jonah is a lot shorter than some of the other books, so minor. But he's a prophet. He's a, God, he's a spokesman for God. So basically what a prophet would do, God would tell them what to say and who to say it to, and then he, he was the mouthpiece. He, he would go to the people and he would say what God told him to say. So this is Jonah. Now, Jonah is a fascinating story. If you've been in church any time at all, you know it's a very, very popular story for the simple fact it's just fascinating. If you've never heard the story of Jonah, you're gonna hear it today, and it's just awesome. It, it's almost mind-blowing, and because it's so fascinating, because it's so mind-blowing, is the second reason that it's popular today, and it's because it's controversial. Some people believe that the story of Jonah never happened because of one of the things that we're going to talk about today. It's hard, it's hard to comprehend because it doesn't make sense in our own minds. So we're going to look at Jonah today. If you need a Bible, uh, there's one close to you in the seats. The verses that we're going to read, we will put on the screen. But if you want to read along, you can go ahead and turn to Jonah in your Bibles. And I will fill in the blanks. We won't read all of it because we will go through the entire book of Jonah this morning. Uh, but I'll fill in some blanks. So let's take a look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So this makes perfect sense. So he's, he's a prophet. So God tells him, I want you to, where I want you to go, I want you to go to Nineveh. And what I want you to do, I want you to preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, history tells us that Nineveh was a very vile city, very, um, a bloody city. It was, it, 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 the, uh, the, the nickname for the city was City of Blood, right? And so they had very little um, regard for human life, maybe no regard for human life at all. And so God says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to this place called Nineveh, nicknamed City of Blood. And this is kind of sort of how the rest of chapter one goes. Uh, Jonah, I want you to go. Jonah says, nope, not doing it. And so let me, here's my map. Okay, y'all ready? Everybody's got to look. Okay, here's Jonah. This is my map. Here's Jonah. And here's where God called him. He's, he's supposed to go right here. And Jonah says, nope, I'm going to Joppa. I'm getting on a boat and I'm sailing all the way over to the furthest place west that I don't even know exists named Tarshish. So this is what Jonah does. So he gets on the boat and as they're on their travels, a big storm comes up. Everybody on the boat's afraid because they're afraid it's going to tear the boat to piece. They're going to die. So they're, they're that afraid. These, all these sailors are pagans. They don't worship God. They all have their own gods. And so they're praying to their own gods saying, hey, please save us. Nothing's working. And so they find Jonah and he's asleep of all things. And they say, hey, who is your God? And he said, well, I worship um, the Hebrew God. And they're like, okay, well, nobody's prayed to him yet. So why don't you pray to him and see if, if maybe he can do something about this storm? And Jonah says, you know what? I don't need to pray. I'm your problem. So I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to take me and you need to throw me into the water. And then the storm will calm. So these guys, they're like, no, I'm a sailor, not a murderer. I mean, I, you know, I, I, so, so let's, let's, get the, let's get the oars out, guys. So they get the oars out and they try to row to shore and that doesn't work. The storm just gets worse. And so this is what they do. I love this part of the story. They don't worship God. Yet they pray to him, and this is what they say. Hey, um, Jonah's God, 
Um, can you please not hold it against us when we murder the only person on this boat that actually worships you? And then they throw him overboard. That's what they did. They prayed, God, please don't hurt us because of what we're gonna do to Jonah. And they throw him overboard. Jonah begins to sink to the bottom and drown and the storm is calmed. So they don't worship God, yet in this moment, they realize that it was God who saved them. And so they praised God and even made a sacrifice to him right there on the boat as Jonah sinks. Now, I just wanna stop at this point in the story and let you know Jonah had a choice, right? When they came to him and said, hey, Jonah, will you pray to your God and see if he can stop this storm? Jonah could have done this thing that the Bible calls repent. He could have said, okay, I'm the problem and the problem is I'm not doing what God asked me to do. I'm running from that. And so, God, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Hey, boys, turn the boat around. Let's go the other way and the storm's gonna calm down. But he didn't do that. Jonah at this point in the story, and at this point we don't know why, we will find out later, but he would rather die than go to Nineveh. Now I don't know, I don't know if he's afraid, he don't, we don't know at this time, point in time in the story, but what we know is he would rather die than go to Nineveh. So he's sinking to the bottom of the ocean, sea, whatever it is, and then in verse 17 we read this. Here's where we become controversial. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Let's just time out right there in the middle of the verse. Okay, I'm an animal enthusiast. I have a degree in animal science, and so I love all things animal. At this point in the verse, this is scientifically perfectly okay. Now, it's technically not a fish that we know of. It would be a whale. Um, but there is a whale with a mouth big enough and an esophagus big enough and a stomach big enough to swallow a man whole. Okay, so this part is the easy part. But here comes the controversy. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, scientifically, we can't prove how that would be feasible, right? This is where faith comes in to the picture. Now, I just want you to know, if, if you are new to church, if you're new to this Bible thing, if you're skeptical, that's okay. I believe it happened just like it said it happened. But if you don't, if this is too much uh, to grasp, that's okay. Let's just take this part of the story as part of the story that helps make a point. I've already used two of those today with you. I'll tell a story to help make a point. So even if it's that, the lesson in the end is still the same. So stay with me as we go through this. So now we get to chapter two where Jonah is in the fish. And this is kind of the whole thing, chapter two. He says, okay, God, um, I was in trouble and I prayed and you, you saved me. You sent a fish to eat me. And I'm so grateful for that. Anybody else have a problem with that? Like, like I'm like, uh, I would rather be in the ocean drowning than inside these, this fish stomach thing. But anyway, so Jonah's happy about this and he praises God and he says, hey, because you saved me, I will do what you asked me to do. I will go to Nineveh. And so the story says, now I have a very vivid ima imagination, y'all. So it says that the fish vomited him up on dry land. Okay, I'm picturing this. Big fish, can't swim in shallow water, yet he vomits him up onto dry land. So the only thing that I can come up with logically is projectile vomit. Sorry, but that's all I got for you. I'm telling you, that's the only way it could have happened. Anyway, Jonah ends up on dry land and then he goes to Nineveh. And then we pick up in chapter three, verses four and five. This is what we see. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. Now understand this is a huge city and it takes about three days to walk through it. So he's, he walks in one day and this is what he's proclaiming, right? He's supposed to tell them what God told him to say. 
40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's what he's telling Nineveh, the Ninevites. He's saying 40 more days and you will be overthrown. And this is what we find out there, how they react to it. The Ninevites believe God. They believe what Jonah is saying. And so this is what happens. It says a fast was proclaimed, so they quit eating. And all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Now, when the king actually heard about um, what Jonah was saying, he actually took it to another level. The king said, okay, you're right to, to fast, but this is how we're gonna do this. No eating and no drinking for you or any of your animals. So poor Oreo doesn't get to eat or drink. He doesn't get his chicken nuggets. No eating, no drinking. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna turn from our wicked ways, our evil ways. All of the, the killing and all the blood and all of that stuff, we're gonna quit doing that. And maybe, just maybe, God will spare us. So in chapter three, verse 10, we find this. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, I want you to think about this. Jonah is a preacher and he goes to a city to let them know what they're doing wrong and what they need to be doing right in order to save their lives. And everyone does what he asks. Like the whole city is saved because of what he did. So he goes to this city and he says, hey, this is what you need to do. God's gonna gonna destroy you if you don't. And so this is what you need to do. And they all do exactly what he said. Now you would think in chapter four, what we would read about is Jonah's a hero, that they're throwing a party for him right? He's excited. This is a celebration. Like if that were to happen to me, I'm a pastor. If that were to happen to me, I would be beside myself. You would think people from other countries are like, man, you hear about this guy Jonah and what he did in Nineveh? Man, just all, all of the talk that would be going on. But in chapter four, we see something very, very different. Turn your eyes to verse one. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Okay. I did what God told me to do and he answered what, you know, the, the message that, that I gave and yet it's wrong? He thought this was very wrong. Now, check him out. Now, the rest of the story, he's mad. Okay, you just get that? Just, he's real mad. And so he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Now he's gonna gripe at God. This is the God of the universe. This is who he is speaking with right, <laughs> right now. Isn't this what I said? I told you so. This is what he's telling God. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Here's why he didn't want to go. That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. It's not that I was afraid of my life. I was afraid you weren't going to punish them for doing bad. Whew. I knew that you were a graceful and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, this is how mad he is. He didn't want to live anymore. Take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Isn't it funny how quickly Jonah forgot where he was three days ago or however long it took him to get there? He was sinking to the bottom of the ocean in desperate need of some help. And he honestly deserved to be there. And God sent a fish 
to save him and he's praising God and I'm gonna do this and then he goes to Nineveh and does exactly what he's supposed to do and God does exactly what he thought he would do and now he's mad. He's so mad, he doesn't even want to live. Now, this next part is kind of sort of ironic to me. Um, Jonah's mad, God saved the city and he's mad and check out what he does. He goes to the outside of the city and he sits down and he looks towards the city to watch it. Now, Jonah still has hope in his heart that God is going to destroy this city. Is that not horrible? He goes outside the city, builds himself a shelter, and he sits down to watch this city. He wants to see what's going to happen to this city. He still can't understand why God saved them. And so while he was sitting out there, God sent him, he he built a shelter for shade, but he obviously wasn't a very good builder because um, God sent him a vine and it grew up on the shelter and it provided him shade and it said he was comfortable for the first day. He sat out there for multiple days, y'all, waiting to see this city destroyed. And so God sent him a vine and it gave him shade and he was comfortable and then God sent a worm and it ate the vine and killed the vine and took his shade. And the next day was really hot and the wind was blowing and, and he was miserable and again he wanted to die. And in verses uh, 9 through 11, he's mad again, but this time he's mad at the plant. But it says, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, I love that God is not angry with him or he doesn't chastise. He just asks him a simple question. Um, Is it right that you're mad about the plant? And Jonah says, it is. It is right that I'm mad. He's mad that God has say, that sent this plant and then took it away. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Here he is again, wanting to die. But the Lord said to him, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it, you did not make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Why are you mad at the plant. I think what God is trying to tell Jonah in this instance is I created the plant. I can be concerned about the plant but I'm not quite sure why you should be concerned about the plant or why you should be angry at the plant. And then he says this, he finishes out those verses and should I have concern, this is God speaking, and shouldn't I have concern For the great city of Nineveh, which there were more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. He's saying, I created the plant. The plant is my concern. I created the people of Nineveh, and they are my concern. And if I would like to show them grace, I can show them grace. So the question still begs to be asked, why is it difficult to give grace when it's so easy to receive it. Now, I just want to recap real quick in our story. There are several places where God shows his grace in this story. And these aren't even all of them, so let me just give you three. Jonah received grace when he was sinking to the bottom of the ocean, right? And the fish saved his life, right? He didn't deserve it, but God gave it to him anyway. The guys on the boat didn't even worship God, but they asked for God to spare them, and he did. And he calmed the seas, and they were saved, and they were grateful. They even made a sacrifice to him. 
And then the people of Nineveh, now we don't know how grateful they were, but we know that they turned to God and turned from their wicked ways and God saved them. They didn't deserve it, but God saved them anyway. So here's our answer. Why is it so difficult to offer grace? Because grace isn't fair. Grace just isn't fair. The very thing that makes grace so beautiful and so easy to receive is the exact same thing that makes it so difficult to give. Grace is not fair. Why is it not fair? Let me, let me say this. Grace is never fair. I don't like using, you can ask my wife, I don't like using the words never or always because most of the time they're not true. You always say that, you never do this. They're just not true. But in this case, grace is never fair. That's what makes it so beautiful but makes it so difficult. Why does it make it difficult? Because grace is costly. And I'll use one of those words again. Grace is always costly. Grace costs something to the giver of it, right? Grace costs something. You and I, in order to offer grace, have to let go of a lot of things. We have to let go of the idea that we need to pay someone back. We have to let go of the idea that they deserve this because this happened, like, like that's just the rule. If this happens, this is what they're supposed to get. We have to let go of all of those things. We must submit to the fact that God has the authority to offer grace to whomever he pleases whether they deserve it or not. It's grace so they don't deserve it. It's grace so you and I don't deserve it. This makes total sense really when you think about God's upside down kingdom. The, the things of man and the things of God are just, they, they're like oil and water, they just don't mix. Because in God's economy, if you wanna be first, you have to be last. In order to lead well, you must follow well. It's not about how many people serve you. It's pretty much more about how many people you serve. And grace fits right in because we deserve it the least and yet we crave it the most. And it begs this question, who cares? Why does it matter if we offer grace to the people around us? Well, there's many reasons, but there's three very specific reasons I wanna share with you today. Grace is the conduit to a relationship with God. We don't get to have a relationship with God outside of grace. Grace is that conduit. Grace is also the conduit to heaven. We don't get to go to heaven without a relationship with God and we don't have a relationship with God without grace. And then thirdly, grace is the conduit to real life. And I'm not talking about real life, like what you think you need, what the world, what society tells you that you're supposed to have. I'm talking about the life that the creator and designer of you created and designed for you. It's the most fulfilling real life that exists. And grace is the conduit to them all. Now, if you're new to church, maybe you're here just checking it out, not really sure. And you're like, okay, Isaac, I, I kind of sort of get this grace thing, but how, how is grace a conduit? How, how does that work? How does, how, how does grace allow me to have a relationship with God and get to heaven and have this real life and all of those things? There's, there's one more story I wanna share with you and it's, it's the best way I know how to explain how this works. 
when my wife and I were first married, we were both in college and we were both going to college full-time and working and we were super poor because, you know, in college, you don't get the great jobs. I just told you earlier, I worked at Whataburger for part of it. Um, and, and so we didn't have a lot of money, but my wife was a gymnastics coach. She was really good in gymnastics. And so uh, she would coach after school. So after school, she was headed to the gym to coach. And for some reason, somehow, she blew a stop sign and T-boned another vehicle. Now she was okay, but she was worried about the people she ran into. And she saw the driver get out. It was a young lady. The driver got out and she's like, oh man, she's okay. But two words turned the situation. She said, my baby. And when she said my baby and reached into the back seat, my wife emotionally completely lost it. There was a chance that she could have hurt a baby. Now, the baby was fine. The other driver was fine. My wife was fine. But emotionally, she was broken. And the police get there and they start working the scene and, and they, you know, doing all their things. And, and they say, Miss Stinson, is there anybody that you want to call? Is there anybody that can come get you? Because they're like, like you're, you're nuts. You're, not, you're crying. You're not going to be able to drive. And so she told the police officer, yeah, could you call my dad? Which was very fitting because her dad was the chief of police. And so the people working the scene reported to him. And so he would, have, he would have great say in how everything turned out that day. And so I remember the, the, the officer that was working the scene. I, don't, I remember the story. I wasn't there. But the officer working the scene went to Russell, my father-in-law, and he said, Sir, my, my belief is that we shouldn't write your daughter any tickets because look at her. I believe she has learned her lesson." And I don't know his words, exact words, but they were something like this. I employ you and it is your job and you have a sworn duty to up, uphold the law and the ramifications for breaking it. And my expectations for you is to do just that. And so he reluctantly wrote my wife three tickets that day. So we get the tickets home, and, and back then, I don't know if they do now. It's been a while. Hope it stays a while. But it said how much the tickets would cost us to pay for them. And, and we were young and in college, and we were broke. And so we, we took what little she had in savings. We took what little I had in savings. We sold some things. I did some side jobs. And we got the money ready to go pay these three tickets. And we go to the courthouse. And oh, I remember like it was yesterday, there was this, this, this counter that you walked up to. And I don't know why, but I was really nervous about going in there and paying these tickets. And we had our money together and we walked up and, and we handed the tickets to the lady behind the counter and said, man, we need, to, we need to pay these tickets. And she said, okay. And she took the tickets and set them down and she started doing her computer stuff. And she goes, oh, these, these have already been taken care of. And I wasn't relieved, I was confused. And I said, no, ma'am, there's no way they could be taken care of because this is my first time in here. I'm the one that's going to pay these tickets. There's, there's no way these could be paid because I, I'm here to pay them. And she goes, no, you don't understand. They are taken care of. And so we left that day. And honestly, we weren't that happy because we were confused. We didn't know what was happening. And I'm like, okay, they're going to come back and say they weren't paid. I, you know, you, you just, all these thoughts running through your head. And it wasn't for a couple of days later. You know how your eyes see things that your mind doesn't process? And it hit me. 
When I opened the door to that courthouse, there was a flash and, it, and, and I remembered it several days later. It was my father-in-law slipping out the back door. And there was the realization that the man who was responsible to uphold the law and the penalty thereof was the same man who paid the debt that we owed. And my friends, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, that's the best way I know how to explain it. God is holy and God is just. And there are ramifications for the sin in our life and that is separation from Him. But even though He upholds that, He's also the one that has paid the debt that we owe and sending His Son, Jesus, to pay that debt. And just like standing at the counter, it, we just have to accept that. And, and if that's you today, I just want you to know there's going to be people right back here behind the sound booth or I'm going to be out in the lobby. Please, I beg you with all I am, come find me. Come talk to the people in the back. They're ready for you. And we can help you understand how to have a relationship with God, how to have heaven, and how to have real life. Now, if you follow Jesus... God wants to use you as a conduit of grace for those around you. You see, grace is unexpected, but it's unexpected in a positive way. And if we can live a life full of grace, then people around us will notice and they will wonder why and how and you can be that conduit to point them to a relationship with Jesus. It's not just important that we live a life full of grace. It is imperative and it is by design. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I am, I am always humbled that you allow me to do this, but God, it's for naught if people don't grasp and put into application the things that you show us, including me. So God, if there's somebody here that doesn't have a relationship with you and they have questions, God, please give them the courage to come talk to somebody in the back or come find me out in the lobby. God, for the majority of the people in this room, I know this, they have a relationship with you. And God, so many times we don't offer grace because we wanna hold on to whatever little control we think we have of the situation. We think we understand why the guy speeding past us was speeding. It was because he's being reckless when it could have been he had a sick kid or a kid in a wreck. Or We don't know. God, we have to let go of those things and just offer the grace that you have given us already. And so God, as we receive, help us to remember. Help us not to be like Jonah and forget. Help us to remember that we didn't deserve it either. It was unfair for you to give it to us. And so God, let's... Let's be okay with it being unfair. God, may we be a conduit to help people understand your love, your grace, and your mercy. God, thank you for this opportunity. And God, please, I beg you, change our lives and change our hearts. It's in Christ's name I pray.